my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Rich LaMonica. He is an Army veteran who realized having a purpose in life is the best way to live. He is a life learner and is pursuing his doctorate from Liberty University in Homeland Security. He started the Misfit Nation podcast as a way to help veterans find their voice by telling their stories, along with bringing in experts who are willing to share tips with veterans on how to be successful through their actions. Um, how, how long have you been doing your Misfit Nation podcast now? So, yeah, I started the Misfit Nation podcast uh, the last week of January of last year. That's when the first episode dropped. So just over a year now. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for, for coming on and agreeing to have this conversation with me. Um, we just recorded uh, an interview on, on your podcast. Um, that was pretty cool, man. I really enjoyed talking with you. So um, now we get to talk more <laughs> about you. Yeah, we get to switch sides of the microphone. I had a blast chatting with you and, and learning your history and stuff. So now it's my turn to share with you. <laughs> um, well, let's start uh, with where you were born and raised. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, I was born and raised in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, my mom and dad were middle class, hard workers. My dad uh, sometimes was working two jobs. Uh, prior to me being born, he, he owned a bar and was working two jobs at the same time. So he's trying to everything he can to make sure his family had everything he didn't have when he grew up. Uh, my grandmother, grandfather still lived in the city with us at the same time. So we got all the values from our, our Italian grandparents and then my mom's parents, which were German, Scottish, Irish, the, the other half of Europe there. So we had all European values and uh, how to get beat by your parents and stuff. So it was good at that point. And my biggest influence is my dad and his hard work and his efforts. My mom, her tenacity, uh, uh, I write about both of them in my book and how they molded us to be the people we are. Uh, my dad served in the Army in the, in the late 50s, uh, just before Vietnam. He actually served with Elvis Presley in the, in the Armor Corps. And uh, so we used to joke with him about that. He, he could have been a singer, too, maybe, and did something different, but he wouldn't have had us at that point. Uh, and uh, his influence, him being in the Army, my grandfather was in the Army, and then my brother joined the Navy. So his service was in our family. My other brother was going to join the service, but he, he hurt his knee, so he couldn't. Then I joined the Army after being told I couldn't by my dad. My dad told me, hey, enough of us has served. It's time for you to go to college. You're going to be our first college graduate. I said, okay. Uh, I wasn't ready for that because all through high school, I was taking classes that meant nothing, like shop, uh, how to build the tree, how, little bird houses, how to make uh, ink plates and stuff like that, graphic arts and stuff. And then my last years of school, I had to take all the classes you need to get to college. So instead of just having a sham year, my senior year, I was taking two sciences, three maths in order to get into college and take the SAT. Somehow I did it. 
I made it through that barrage of classes and uh, I got into a business college and then transferred to St. Peter's College in Jersey City where I walked on and played football because I figured if I was going to be in school, I might as well hit somebody. Might as well be able to have fun and do something. We were the worst college football team ever, probably. We were 0-14 my two years there. Uh, but I learned a lot. You learn a lot about yourself when you lose that many games. And uh, you learn a lot about your brothers and to your left and right on the field and, and who's going to stick up for you, who's not. But finally, I just told my dad, I said, look, I can't do this anymore. I have to. I'm going in. So, so I joined the reserves first. And after that, uh, about 18 months in reserves, I was like, these guys, it's, they're not what I thought the Army was. It's either active or nothing. So I went active duty. Left New Jersey in 1993, and I went to Georgia. Uh, I was there a couple of days, and as soon as I got there is when Black Hawk Down happened. So the battle from Mogadishu happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my unit actually got alerted. I had no idea what was going on. I'm brand new, active duty. Hey, we're on alert. Okay. I don't know what that means. And uh, I was kind of lost in the sauce. I'm getting all these shots. You're going here. You're going there. It's awesome. This is great. I'm going away already. Going on a cool trip. And then they found that I was in the wrong unit. So everyone left and I stayed there and I had all these shots, all this, all this oorah stuff, all this training, but then they get to go. But I started my journey in the army at that point. I went to California, did some training. I met my wife at this time. So 93, 94, we'd get married. I'd go to Korea in 95, come back to the States in 96 uh, to Fort Campbell. We had our daughter in 96, uh, 98, 78, 99, went to Fort Raleigh, Kansas. And from Fort Raleigh, Kansas, uh, on 9-11, I was actually already deployed. I was in uh, on the border of uh, Iraq and Kuwait, uh, Kuwait and Iraq, uh, uh, Operation Southern Wash, it was called. And we got the call saying, uh, we're going to threat Con Delta. You got to get back to the cabal. So yeah, we're like, oh, whatever, it's another drill. So we drove back and uh, I started arguing with my lieutenant saying, this is a lie, because he kept saying the World Trade Center got knocked down. And that was literally, I can see it out in my backyard to the World Trade Center from my house. I was like, there's no way, there's no way it's come. And then I sent one of my young NCOs and he went and looked and said, this aren't, uh, don't yell at him anymore. It's real. We're at war. So that's how we found out. And so I went from a, basically a, a peacekeeping mission to uh, pushing other people to go to Afghanistan to war at that point. So we're in wartime. Went back to Fort Riley and they sent us to the desert to train to go to, to Iraq. So we were in the desert, got sent back home to go train in the desert to go back. So 2003, 2004, I was in Iraq in combat. In Ramadi, Iraq, I'm sure you've heard many stories about Ramadi, American sniper. He spent time there, Chris Kyle. A lot of, uh, a lot of the big books that have been written about Iraq happened in Ramadi. And then uh, we came back 2004. We lost about, uh, I think, 35 guys in our, in our brigade, 65 total with the Marines attached to us. Uh, came back to Fort Riley. From there, I went to Alabama, where I was supervising the destruction of our, our nation's stockpile of chemical weapons. So I did that for three years. Went back to Korea for two years. Uh, after 2010, came back to the States. I was home 60 days, went right to Afghanistan for my next combat deployment. So 2010-11, I was in Kandahar, and that's the first time I lost one of my soldiers in combat. It was December 31st, 2000, uh, 2010, about 8 in the morning. I was clearing a compound and stepped on a, we believe he stepped on a pressure plate, and him and the lieutenant he was with got blown up. The lieutenant lived as a triple amputee. He did not, of course, and he's the, that's when the Misfit Nation was founded in 2010 with that core group of soldiers. Uh, 2011 came home and uh, we thought we were going to be home for a while. About six months later, we had a, a briefing in the gym in a movie theater on post and I got to meet Herschel Walker and Herschel Walker was there, buff, 
and he, you know, always watching him play football when I was younger and played for New Jersey generals. And of course he went to the professional and then of course university of Georgia, the dude was buff. Still we got up there doing push-ups. We're talking to him. We're all motivated. So we left. Then they called us the next day. You got to go back to the theater. So we thought we we're going to meet somebody else. And that's when they told us, Hey, you're going back to war. So we weren't even home seven months and we we're already training to go right back into the cycle. And uh, we went to Kunar the next year, uh, 2012. I was on the ground maybe, I think, two days on my cop when I got wounded. A mortar hit behind me, came through my left leg, the back of my left leg, out the front of my left leg. And I really didn't feel it because the, the boom and, and adrenaline. I looked at my soldier who I was talking to, made sure he was okay. And then I told him to go help other people. As I looked down and seen the blood, I got a tourniquet on there, went inside. My lieutenant started taking care of it, cleaning it. But I didn't think anything was wrong with that. I thought it was just a scratch, a little flesh wound, you know what they call it. And so I sat there. I was still directing fire, directing people. And finally, a special forces medic asked me, he said, Sergeant, you know what gangrene is? I said, yeah, I know what that is. He said, do you want it? I said, not at all. He said, you better get on a helicopter to get out of here. So I got on the helicopter. Still thinking it's just a scratch. They're just going to clean it off and send me back. And I got there and they sent me right to the surgical wing. I said, what's going on? You're supposed to put a Band-Aid on, band on this, send me back to the fight. No, you have to have surgery. Whoa. I said, someone give me a phone. So one of the, one of the soldiers there had a phone, a little burner phone. I, I called my wife so I'd be the one telling her instead of someone else. I called her and said, hey, remember that license plate we talked about? She's like, what? I said, yeah, the purple heart license plate. She said, yeah, so we're getting one. And she just broke down the, the, the phone disconnect. I said, call that number back real quick. I told her, look, I'm all right. I'm talking to you on the phone. I'm, we're okay. I'm going into surgery. I went to surgery and came out my first time ever on crutches and I'm in Afghanistan on crutches. I was like, this is, this is just the best way to do things on uneven terrain, on rocks, gravel walkways. I said, this is going to be an awesome couple of days trying to figure this stuff out. So I begged and pleaded to go back to the, to combat. They wanted me to go all the way to Germany and back home. I said, I won't do that. I'm not leaving my guys. So I finally got the okay. So 32 hours from the time I got wounded to the, to the time I got back to my base. I still had the crutches, still had a blown up knee. And I, I would sneak every morning to the gym to walk on the treadmill, a little fake, uh, little makeshift gym. I'd walk on it just to get the swelling down. And then finally until I can run again. And after the doctor said I wouldn't run again. So I said, I'll, I'll prove that wrong. I'll prove that wrong. And I did that. We came home. I think it was December of 2012. I ran my first marathon after that in uh, November that year, November, 2013 in Savannah, just to show my comeback trail. I was able to fight through all that and come back. My wife actually ran that one with me. That was her first marathon and my first one after being wounded. So I, the journey was another challenge accepted at that point. I retired in 2015, right back here at Fort Campbell. Uh, I stayed here. I was two days. I came back here two days to retire. I retired and then took an entire year to try to find a job. Uh, for six months in there, I volunteered at the Red Cross to try to give back to them for all the things they did for us while I was deployed and while I was overseas. What they do for every, like, few, especially in your, your profession, you've seen them at almost every scene, probably every structural fire, they were there. Uh, any uh, major disaster, they were there. And they were always there for us, sending soldiers home, sending me home twice from Korea for emergencies. So I wanted to give back and I wound up volunteering almost 800 hours in seven months, six months. And I got hired by the company that put me into that position. So I worked there at the Mission Continues as a, as a, a fellowship program specialist to. Uh, help uh, transitioning veterans in there for, for six months as they went through the same thing I did, volunteering in a nonprofit in their community to try to get their feet back, to get wet again, and do things again in their hometown. 
from I did that for two years, and then my old first sergeant called and said, "Hey, man, you want to work here?" I said, "Heck yes!" So uh, now I've been uh, working right here on Fort Campbell, training soldiers for the last three years on emerging threats. And of course, in that time, I read, uh, wrote the book that's behind me, 13 Step Guide to Success, and started the Misfit Nation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty busy guy. Yeah, um, a little bit. <laughs> so uh, how many years did you did you do in the Army? 22 years, uh, three months and four days. What, uh, what unit were you attached to? Uh, I was in multiple units. Uh, my last one was the 101st Airborne Division. What was your MOS? Uh, when I started, it was 54 Bravo, and, and they switched to 74 Delta, which is a chemical operations specialist, so uh, weapons of mass destruction or hazmat, like uh, in the civilian world. Because I was wondering what kind of role you were playing when you were uh, you know, supervising the destruction or the disposal of all of our chemical <laughs> weapons. So at that point, I was a senior non-commissioned officer, so I was a senior listed advisor. So I just, well, I watched 300 civilians do the work. I went in there and I was the guy that just stood back and I didn't touch them. I got to see them. I was one of the lucky guys to actually see part of our stockpile and watch uh, 300 of the most amazing professionals ever met in my life. Move those things with the, with the utmost care and security from bunker to destruction. And, and they were great people, all of them. They still are. What inspired you to write your book? All right. My book, uh, during 2020, as you know, uh, we had this little thing called COVID start in 2020. So every month at the end of the month, I would I would write this crazy, crazy saying on Facebook saying, uh, welcome to level two of Jumanji, welcome to level three of Jumanji, and have a little, little inspirational quote on there, what you should be doing. And my daughter said, hey, you should probably put that into a book and expand it. So at the end of the year, I actually laid out the 13 steps as my final thing. You made it to you made it to the end of the level, this level of Jumanji. You made it uh, go out and have fun. And I put the 13 steps. So I expanded all 13 steps into basically 10 page chapters and how to make those steps work for you. What are the 13 steps? I'm, I'm curious. All right. So the first step, uh, first and foremost, tell the people around you that you love them. Tell them that you care about them. I mean, you don't have to be in love with them. Just say, hey, brother, I love you. Just do that. You give a bro hug, give a high five. Don't let the days go by and, and regret if you don't have them anymore in your life that you didn't say, hey, bro, you're, you're, you're my homie. You're, you're the best. I love you, man. And then uh, after that, know your circle. Uh, it, everyone has their, their key people in their lives. They're, they're a solid group of people that are their, their circle of life. Grow that circle, get that trust, and then start growing outward. Build your community, build your house, clean your house clean your neighborhood, and then clean your community. This will help in making this country back to what it should be, one country instead of the way we are now divided. If everyone starts worrying about getting their cells, their act together, and stop worrying about the talking heads are saying, we'll start actually doing things the right way, like we were taught when we were growing up, everything like that. Uh, live by rules is another one of the steps. So uh, big fan of NCIS. Uh, uh, Leroy Jethro Gibbs always has like 80-something rules on there. And some of them are logical. Some of them are just, of course, Hollywood. But Colin Powell also had rules he lived by for leadership. So uh, he was one of my, the guys I looked to as I was growing up as a leader in the Army, as someone to emulate as a leader, him and James Mattis, General Mattis. And uh, so I took the, that nuance into my life, and I, I have rules I live by, and I put them in the book as well so you can go through there. And then I have a sheet in there so you can just make up your own rules, the rules that you live by. One of the ones I do, I took from Gibbs is always carry a knife. 
you should always have something with you to cut out of something. If, you, if something happens, you got to get able to cut out or, or use it as a screwdriver. But you always have something you can fight with. And, uh, and that's how the rules go. It's to make you a better person, not to be a business success or anything like that, but a successful human. How many times were you deployed into a, a combat theater? Uh, four times. Can you talk a little bit about how those deployments shaped you? And and because clearly you're a, a different person than you were before you uh, deployed. And Definitely am. And at first, I didn't want to admit that, though. And uh, so we were gone. Like I said, we were gone for 9-11. So that one was kind of a half deployment combat because we still thought we were just doing nothing. But we we're actually part of something bigger than we thought. But when I went to combat in 2003, 2004, and every time you roll out the gate and you're hearing ding, 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 ding on your vehicle, it's because someone out there hates you and wants to kill you because they're told that we're the, we're the evil person. It kind of makes your, your mind go different ways. So that whole, the whole 360 something days I was there, you were always on, you're on all day, 24 seven, always on in this combat mode. So that makes you adrenaline high. The adrenaline's up all the time. You're trying to get as much energy as you can. Uh, Red Bull was uh, just coming out at the time, I think. So we drink them before missions. We'd have coffee, Red Bull, get out there, do our missions, and try not to let that drain out till the next one, and then do it again and keep repeating. Always head on a swivel. So when we came home from that one, and I was driving from Kansas to New Jersey for leave, and I had to pull over. I said, I can't drive. I can't drive here anymore. And because... Every time I seen something on the road, I wanted to swerve way away from it, thinking it might be a roadside bomb. So my head was in this world like, hey, you, so it's, that's like the light, lowest level PTSD, I think, is just a reaction like that. So the, the ingrained, uh, ingrained moments like that. I didn't have it so bad where if I heard gunshots or fireworks, anything bothers me. But I can see things in like a box on the side of the road. There's so much litter on the roads here. If you see that in Iraq, it's a bomb. If you see it in Afghanistan, it's a bomb. In the States, it's just trash most times, except in Boston uh, during the Boston Marathon. So I'd swerve and do that things. And I was also a lot shorter with people. So if my daughter said something or did something, I'd snap. But I wasn't noticing this. I thought it was just me being normal. My wife and daughter kept saying, you've changed, you've changed. It wasn't until I came home after the 2010, 2011 deployment to Kandahar that I asked for help. I went to, we came home, we go through regeneration and I asked the, the doc, I said, look, I need help. Things are going wrong. And he just looked at me and said, you're a sergeant first class. You just got to get back in the fight. So, okay. I just asked for help. I literally just asked you for help. So it wasn't until I was out and then 2016, I actually was able to go and sit with a psychiatrist and a social worker and get my head unscrambled and back to a place where I'm a lot better with things now. I take things in. Uh, I'm a little slower to react now than I used to be. I don't just snap at people. I stay calm, think things through, and try to go now. What was it in in 2010 or after that 2010 deployment that really led you to say, yeah, I need some help? Well, like I said earlier, uh, we lost Sergeant Michael Beckerman on uh, December 31st, 2010. This is during, uh, I don't know if you remember, they called it the surge into Afghanistan 2010-11, and General Petraeus was in charge of us. We were in the hottest part of the country where the fighting was the most intense. So every day we were losing people. Our, our division lost 100, over 100 soldiers that year in, in Afghanistan. Our brigade lost 65, 65 total on our brigade. My soldier was the 100, he was the 100th of the division that was killed. And he was my first soldier that actually 
fully got killed in combat. I had two wounded in Iraq and I never really got the same because they got wounded on the convoy up. He was one that was like the heart and soul of the platoon and it kind of hit us all hard. But being the leader of the platoon, I had to lead them all, and make sure they were good. I watched out for everyone else and I made sure they all got help in theater, made sure they all went seeing people. But I really never got help for myself. I'd go running, I'd work out and then go right back to patrol, go on patrol, make sure everything's going on. So by the time I got back, my head was, I was like, I'm on the plane ride home. I can tell it was all draining and I knew I need to, I needed to do something. And the first thing I did when I got home was I, I drank as soon as I got home, drank beer, drank liquor. And then we went to the regeneration. I said, look, I need help. I need help now. And they're like, no, you're good. You're good. You got this. You just have a little, you just had a little PTSD. You're good. All right. Then I went back in combat again. Like I told you, when I got wounded in 2012, and I knew I was off there and I had this negativity going into that deployment, knowing that most of my friends who died, died on their third or fourth deployment. I said, I've already attempted fate three times. This is my fourth one. I'm not coming home. So I'm just going to go in and I'll just accept it. And it wasn't until I got wounded until I woke up. When I got wounded, I woke up and said, turn the switch back on. Let's get back in this fight. And I came back home. I thanked one of my soldiers, uh, Sergeant Cumming, uh, now uh, Chantel Watts now. She told me, Sergeant, you're way better than this. Don't say those things. Don't say those things. Don't say those things. You got to get your head out of, there, out of your fourth point of contact and get in there and fight. And I was just so negative and getting wounded made me positive again and, and move forward. What were some of the things that, that helped you um, overcome a lot of those symptoms of PTSD? I think one, I did EMDR, so eye movement, uh, I forgot the other, some kind of radial therapy. You, you talk things and you have like these little buttons in your hand, you press them. I tell the whole story and you try to relive it through the story to the therapist and just getting it out and speaking about it. Because I couldn't really talk about a lot of this with my wife because there's not things you want to tell your wife and, and daughter. I've seen this. You don't want to you don't want to describe that stuff to them. So talking to the therapist actually helped getting it out and then getting active again, going out and getting on a running plan, going to the gym every day and just being with humans and talking to people. When I was in the house, especially that first year after being in the military, it was, you take your boots off that last time, then you don't know what to do. And, and you run into that wall and you don't have nothing really to do. You have no real responsibilities except to make sure that your retirement check comes in and your wife and daughter have food. And uh, once I started being active again, get the job and being having that sense of purpose again, when I got to the Red Cross, I had that sense of purpose to help others. And when I went to the Mission Continues, having that sense of purpose to help my fellow veterans. And now my sense of purpose with the job I have now to help young soldiers so they can come home from war if they deploy. So that you have that sense of purpose, a purpose-filled life. What are some of the things that, um, that maybe you would like to share with, with young soldiers or soldiers that are getting ready to deploy um, for the first time? Uh, things that they might see and, and knowing that there is that stigma uh, surrounding PTSD and, and getting help. Um, is there any advice? The one thing I always tell soldiers is trust your training. Cause a lot of times you go, I don't know, even in the fire department, you had to go to mandatory training every year, every year you had to do reclass and recertifications in the army. It's, just, it's no different. You got to go to ranges. You got to go to first aid classes. You got to do all certain things every year. And most times it just becomes monotonous. Yeah, I'm here, I'm signing in, but I'm not really present. It's not until you actually need those skills 
that you realize the value of it. So an example of this was in 99, before I left Fort Campbell, I was on my last field problem here actually, and a helicopter flew over us and crashed right, right past where my squad just walked. My whole squad ran into this and went on autopilot. Every training that we had for first aid was just going on automatic. We didn't even think about it, it just happened. Everything we did, we were able to get five of the 11 guys out there alive. One of those, one of those five did pass away later, but we were able to get four to live and have a, basically a, a life after that, after that day, just based off uh, operations that we did in those classes that we thought were monotonous, but it all kicked in. So when I see soldiers and they're getting ready to go, like currently guys are going over to Europe to help NATO, trust your training. You're going to see bad things. Combat is ugly. It's not a, it's not pretty. It's not like Hollywood where if someone dies, everyone just drinks a coffee or drinks a beer and walks away. It's in front of you. You get the seat. You're going to pick up your buddy. You're going to have to carry him or her someplace. You're going to see it. You're going to have it all over you. You can have the smells of combat. Just be ready for it. Don't, it's not going to be the end of your life. You can still live past it, but live to fight another day. Live like they think you wanted, they wanted to fight or live your battles, the next battle, like they would have lived theirs. And that's kind of what I, when I did uh, Sergeant Beckerman's eulogy, I told both the both platoons that he was a part of that, hey, we got this now. We're in the breach. Let's go keep this fight going. And so keep them motivated to move forward. Don't keep don't take steps back. If someone dies or someone gets hurt, move forward because that's what they would have wanted you to do. One of the things that I, I talk a lot about with my guests uh, is really those moments that we we fall flat on our face, make mistakes, you know, maybe even things that are are to the point where you feel a sense of shame, you know, um, and and being able to recover from those and move forward and and uh, taking a lesson out of those experiences and maybe be able to use that experience to add value to somebody else. Um, in, in your in your career, I'm sure you've made mistakes. Everybody does. What what experiences do you have that um, you think might be of value to to those listening? I believe, uh, like in my, like you said, my career, 22 years, I made some, I made some mistakes, uh, some, some bigger than others. Uh, as a young sergeant, I got into a bar fight in Korea. I, I hit a guy so hard he had to get 60 stitches in his head. And I, mean, I got in a lot of trouble for that. And I thought my career was over right there. That was 1995. I said, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I, I got in trouble. This is it. So I was down on myself a little bit. And then I had some people around me, uh, senior NCOs, look, you can bounce back from this. All you got to do is do something better now. If you may have fallen down, but it's, you're not judged by how many times you fall down. You judge by how many times you get back up again. So if you don't, if you lay down, that's what you're judged by. You stay down and, and just roll over and, and play dead. You're that person. But if you're the guy who every time he stumbles, gets right back up and keeps going forward, you're, that's the, what everyone will remember. That dude's a fighter. He's tenacious. He's resilient. He may make mistakes because not everyone's perfect. You're going to make mistakes in life. You just got to keep going forward. And once you once you get that in your head that you can stay positive and keep moving forward, that everything changes for you in life. What are some of the lessons that you've passed on to your daughter? 
Uh, I told her when she was two that tears make her face wet. So she, don't cry in front of me. <laughs> and uh, when she would graduate high school, they'd do some uh, crazy poster they had to make of their hero. And she put me on there and it was me running. And uh, on it said, uh, uh, crying makes your face wet. And this is uh, 16 years later. Uh, and I, that was a proud moment for me. But lessons I taught her were hard work, being resilient. And if at first you don't succeed, keep trying. She published a book right out of high school. As an 18-year-old girl, she published a book called uh, The Unexpected by Lexi LaMonica. And that was like a proud dad moment right there. And I always loved going to her soccer games, watching her on track uh, across country and coaching her in soccer and coaching her in basketball. But when she wrote that book on her own and got it published, I said, that's my daughter right there. Proud, da proud dad moment. And I was home for it. I was finally out of the Army. I was able to reconnect with her and I did the book tour with her. Every time she did a book signing, I was there with her. So I learned from her. So when I did my book, she was my editor and now she's booking all my engagements. Bad ass, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's also starting a fitness in the fitness business now too. So she, she's a, she's a little rock star right now. I'm sure you've taught your daughter a, a ton of stuff, but if there was one lesson that you, you believe maybe you haven't taught her yet or one that you have, but you'd like to reemphasize, what would that be? I think the one lesson I taught her when she was younger and I reemphasize all the time is friends come and go, but family lasts forever. And I try to reiterate that to her. I said, you're going to have people that come in and out of your life. Those are acquaintances. You have people that come into your life that stay tight with you. That's your family. You have your blood family. Then you have your family, which are the people that you, that you can look at and say, look, I need to help right now. And they'll be there for you. Always find those people and rely on those people and also give them back what they give you. Don't just always take, 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 and don't always look for a handout, look for a hand up. And then I think that's resonated with her a lot now. I ask these questions uh, of a lot of my guests, you know, especially those that have daughters. I've got a 15 year old daughter. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just, um, I feel like I've done a pretty good job as a, as a father, but you know, you always want to do better. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I, I ask those questions cause any little pointers I like to like to put them in file, you know? Definitely. I, th I think I was, I'd always reach back to my dad and ask him questions, make sure I was doing things right. And he had three sons and one daughter. I had one daughter. So he knew, he knew some of the lay of the land. He was able to give me some pointers and, and tell me how to get out of my own way. So it was good. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best thing, uh, like for me, I was, I wasn't gone all the time. My wife was the one who raised her since I was gone a lot during my daughter's uh, formative years. I wasn't here when she got her license. I wasn't here when she got the chicken pox the first time. I wasn't here for her first step. I mean, uh, I was gone a lot. And so the years after I got out have been the best years of our relationship. So we've grown so close now and between her 18th birthday and now 26 years old that we're inseparable now. All those deployments and stuff had to have been, you know, tough uh, on your marriage too, right? It, it's not easy. No, not at all. And uh, having a strong wife at home, it, it took a toll on her and uh, we're working with that now. Uh, our marriage is solid. It's just the mental health for her always worrying. As soon as I walk out the door, is he coming home? What do I do if he's gone? How do I do this without him? 
why, what do I do when he's not here? Or what if something happens while he's gone and I can't handle it here? Will he be mad at me? And I would never be mad at her. And I always, that's why she had control of the pay, the finances. I never took control of it because I knew if something happened to me, she would have to do it anyway. So you might as well do it. Just let me know if I need to make adjustments anywhere. So she was always strong. And so every time you come home, it's like um, almost starting over again. So it's the newness again. It's like a honeymoon phase every time you come home. And then you go through those ebbs and flows. So you get the, oh, I'm tired of you now. Let's, let's get away from each other for a little bit. So now with this job here, I, I don't leave as much, but she's, she's real happy when I go on trips now. <laughs> so what advice would you give to the young soldiers that are getting married, they're married or, you know, just cause, cause I know, I mean, the divorce rate in the military in in public safety, I mean, this, it, it it's high yeah, and, it's and high. for, for somebody that has been able to keep it together, you, you got to have some pointers, man. Uh, I was told by my uncle John right when I got married, he said, always talk to each other. And his his wife was she was a talker. I mean, she she yapped all the time. And I asked him <laughs> how he how he dealt with that. And he said sometimes you just mute them out and and try to figure out when they're gonna end the sentence. And then they'll say, What I just say, you say what they said at the end, then they'll just keep going. So I took his pointers to always talk to her, never go to bed mad, always say I love you. Uh, never leave the house without saying I love you. Saying it, make sure I always walk at four o'clock in the morning, four thirty in the morning. We get up together, five thirty she leaves for work because she works on the other side of town, and I walk outside in my shorts and, and hoodie and I wave goodbye to her, make sure she drives away safely. But communication is key. Having give and take. Uh, no, no, either one, either one of you is not the alpha. You're in the, it's in the fight together. It's one team, one fight. And the ones I I, I see a lot of things fails when one of them has to have everything right or they're always right. And the other person is never able to do anything that they want to do. Those usually fail. Or if it's all about the uh, sexual part of the, the marriage that fails, if it's not something where you can do other things like go for a hike or go for a run, or maybe just go get ice cream. Those things matter. Thing, little things matter. And then uh, you have to make, take that into account. And for the young soldiers, when, um, when you come home, you're not in charge. Remember, they've been running that house the whole time you're gone. They've been doing everything. Don't come home and try to be a tornado. And I, I call it seagull leadership. You come in and crap all over everything, and then you leave again. Just melt back in, melt back in, and just start saying, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, whoever was home. And then kind of slowly go back into it and then get back into the action. Don't, don't try to disrupt the lifestyle. I would imagine, like, as a first sergeant, you had to, you know, counsel – quite a few of your soldiers you know oh, yeah. definitely <laughs> what was one of the biggest things that you know you saw uh, alcohol related incidents probably the biggest thing uh and that's the military and hall i mean every military base has a class six that is straight up alcohol cheapest no taxes so if you're 21 you can buy all you want if you have a buddy that's 21 and you're 18 he'll buy it for you because your brother's in arms and you know, they figure if you're 18, you're old enough to die for your country, you can drink. But a lot of these guys don't understand that when you drink, you got to be responsible. And they get the DUIs. They go out and get in a drunken disorderlies, a public intoxications. And then those lead to other things where they come home and now they're domestic assaults and stuff. So in domestic violence, 
in the military, you wind up with the Lautenberg Act put on you. You can't carry a weapon. So you got to get out of the military. So that's that's a hard counsel to give somebody and tell them, hey, you're done now, man. You, you've done 11 years, but you're done. You can't even serve the military anymore because you can't hold a weapon. And their heads drop. Uh, some uh, uh, females who get pregnant, they get a choice to stay in or get out. So that's a counseling you got to do for them. And a lot of a lot of mine stayed in, so that was an easy one. Just you just got to write it down that they they made that choice to stay in. And but there's so many things that happen. Uh, the weirdest things: a, a guy came home, bath salts and meth. He beat up his house because he thought there were zombies in there uh, trying to kill him. That was the weirdest one I had. But there's it's a plethora of things that happen in the military. It happens on the outside world too. But it, in the military, it's like a fishbowl, and everyone knows everything. I don't know. When I, when I get an opportunity to talk to somebody with your experience, I like to just try and get as much information as I can because it's um, leading in, in the military, especially in combat, it's those high stress environments where it's the leadership ahead of deployment that really makes a big difference. And if you don't get that right, you're pretty much screwed you know when you get into that that uh, high stress environment because those people don't trust you definitely uh, I, my 2010 2011 deployment when i got i was in korea until 2010 till uh, july i got here and 60 days later i met my platoon in afghanistan they left in april from fort campbell so i never even met them before didn't do any of the train up with them didn't do anything so i went in there as the untested leader so I had to prove myself to this platoon that I was one of them. So I went on every patrol with them. If they were getting dirty, I was getting dirty. If we were building a tower, I was building a tower. Unless I was called away to do something else, I was there with them and showing them that I was willing to be in the stuff with them as much as possible. And then my other, other three deployments, I was there for the train up. So you had that camaraderie going in. This one here, was, it was a building process. And that's what led to the Misfit Nation. Now, it's funny that you should say all that, that you, if they were getting dirty, you were getting dirty. You didn't have to do that. What, what made you, what was it that, that led you to take those steps? In my career, I always had leaders that did that, that if, if they told me to do something, they were doing it right next to me. So that, that bled off me. I was with, when I was with the infantry, every infantry NCO, if they told you to do something, they were doing it with you. They were stuck just as bad as you were they didn't let it be shown that like they were sucking but they knew it they were hurting and then throughout my career i was just kept that thing if i gave a soldier a task i would do it too i would show them that i can do that same task and then going into combat with dudes that never seen me before just oh, another nco coming in great we have a new one he's not going to do anything and i showed him that and that just got us all closer together and we all would do anything for each other in combat at that point. So you said that's where the Misfit Nation started. Can you talk a little bit about that foundation and what what developed and, and how that's carrying over now? Definitely. Uh, so in 2010, when I got to Afghanistan, I was handed a platoon. It was a quick reaction force and the and the um, uh, FOB security force. Uh, so they we were in charge of every tower on the po on the on the FOB as long as uh, along with building all the gates, and then doing the patrols outside into the community to make sure no one was gearing up against us. That platoon was made up of people with all different MOSs. I had cooks, 
I had MPs, I had mechanics, all types of mechanics, uh, small engine, big engine, uh, air conditioning repairmen, uh, radio uh, communication soldiers, and then I had human intelligence guys. We were all from different backgrounds, all from different pools of things. Of course, chemical guys were there too. I had a couple of my actual platoon there, but we were all from different areas of the battalion that no one wanted. So we were like the island of the misfit toys. And that, that's how our name came, the Misfits. And uh, as we got stronger and stronger and stronger throughout the year, the Misfit Nation was born. And since then, we stay in touch. Uh, uh, one of them is still stationed here at Fort Campbell, so I see him whenever he's not busy working because he's still in, still in the Army. So I can't just go and make him go out and eat lunch with me or go drink during lunch. So, you know, he'll get in trouble. But I get to see him when, when we have time together. And everyone else, we're, thanks to Facebook and social media, we're always in touch with each other. And if someone needs something, they will quickly ask on a text. Neither they'll get attacked in the text for saying something dumb or they'll be praised and given all the respect they need and support. For those listening, what's the best way to connect with you? What's the best way to get your book? Um, of course, I'm going to have the, the links and the show notes. Uh, but just for those listening, best way to get in touch with you. Uh, so our website, themisfitnation.com, that's themisfitnation.com, just as it sounds, that has everything on there. It has all our episodes of our podcast. It has uh, both the audio and the video, the YouTube's version, and then it has a store link on there to buy the book, to buy our merchandise, like our hats and stuff, or hats and shirts. Uh, and I think there's a contact form on there. Usually when I get contact from there, I get back with people within a couple hours, or they can just write me at misfitnationpodcast at gmail.com, and I get right back with people. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is important to share with the listeners? I think we hit, we hit everything. I think yeah. <laughs> we hit a lot of stuff. Yeah, man. Well, man, I, I really appreciate you you taking the time to talk with me and share your story. Um, I, I think it's really powerful. Uh, I want to thank you for your service and, and everything that you gave to this country and, and continue to give. Uh, so thank you very much, man. You're welcome, uh, uh, brother. Thanks for having me on here and uh, let me share my story with you and your audience. And if anyone out there needs anything, like I said, just reach out and I'll do my best to get you the help you need. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.